Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, looking into the taxi suicides, Brooklyn Pride as Pride Month begins, and the New York City Transit Authority president answers tough questions, and Starbucks sensitivity training. Hi, and thanks for joining us. We've got a packed show today. I'm joined by my producer, Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ashley. Hi, Ross. How are you? Fantastic. We're going to be joined in a moment by a reporter who's been covering the taxi driver suicides in the city. Five so far this year, mm-hmm. one just this past week, and their livelihoods have really been challenged and devastated by these app-based driver services. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. But first, I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about the Valerie Jarrett Roseanne Barr situation. You know, I do. And I do want to talk about it just because this is another one of those times when I think people tend to conflate um, free speech with being absolvent of consequences for your actions and what you say. I see a lot of people trying to compare what happened to Roseanne to what happened to Colin Kaepernick, which is really interesting to Hmm, me. I I see it a lot online because these are very, very, like, not just different issues, but also different actions. You mean with him being blackballed? And her show being canceled? Her show being canceled. For having free speech? You know, there's a lot going on there, and it's a very nuanced conversation, more nuanced than I think we have time to get into. But I think the big problem right now with the commentary that's happening around the show is that people are unwilling to deal with the fact that the show is called Roseanne. And Roseanne is the star of the show. And if the star of the show is doing and saying things like this, the show might get canceled. And it really sucks, I think, for the crew members who have now lost access to money and livelihood that they would have had otherwise. But otherwise, I don't feel bad for Roseanne. And I don't think anyone really does. Or should. Or should, maybe. But I don't get to tell anybody who they feel bad for. Well, unless it was the ambient speaking. Yes, know? it and was then, probably the ambient. Then we got to talk to the drug manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They who already put... said that their drug does not cause racism. Right. They did. Publicly. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely did. What times we are in. What a time to be alive. Yes. We've got Ganta Kadrigama on the phone mm-hmm. right now. He's the freelance journalist who's been following the story about the New York City cabbies and the recent spate of suicides. Uh, mm-hmm. Skantha, are you there? Hi, yes, I am. Thanks for joining us. Of course, yeah. Skantha, people may not be paying much attention to this and think it isn't a big deal, but it obviously is. Can you tell us why there's that disconnect in perception versus reality when it comes to, you know, these taxi drivers who are ending their lives over this? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the sad aspects of a story like this is that Taxi drivers, as workers who provide a service, are often taken for granted, especially in the sense that we now have these ride-hailing apps that, you know, add another level of convenience. But unfortunately, the economics of those apps really have contributed to a cycle by which a lot of the more traditional drivers in the city have been left behind and really deprived of both a livelihood and economic security. And I think one of the reasons people should be paying attention is this has become a pattern now. New York just lost its fifth traditional driver in the space of five months, a man by the name of Yumain Kenny Chow, who, after realizing that he basically couldn't support his family under this 
sort of crushing $700,000 debt he'd taken out to support his medallion. He wasn't able to provide education for his daughter. His wife had, re had recently been diagnosed with cancer. He ended his life about a block away from Gracie Mansion. He parked his car, and then he jumped into the East River. And that was two weeks ago that this all happened. His body was only recently recovered. Is there something that people don't appreciate about this? We talk about app-based driving services, but you just mentioned about the debt that he was under for the medallions. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it is such a crushing debt and how now, since their incomes are being halved in some cases, that that's just something that yeah. is no longer sustainable? I think what a lot of people in New York don't understand is the historical role medallions have played in the taxi industry. It's gone from the way the city regulates the number of cabs on the road to a way that cabbies were planning their retirements or their children's uh, education or putting away for emergencies like a loved one falling ill. For a very long time, the city of New York supported the value of the medallion but stopped doing that. And then on top of that, companies like Uber and Lyft entered recently, and they have no such regulation. They can put as many cars as they want on the boat. Whew. Well, Skantha, thank you so much for talking to us about this. Uh, please continue to do this important work and important reporting, and we'll keep our eyes peeled. Maybe we'll have you back soon. Coming up, with June just around the corner, we'll talk Brooklyn Pride. Then a report from an MTA town hall. Plus, a Starbucks employee talks about the company's day of racial sensitivity training. Stay with us. In June 1969, the police raided Greenwich Village's Stonewall Inn in what became the catalyst for a series of demonstrations, some violent, credited with paving the way for progress in LGBTQ rights in America. That's why June is Pride Month. To kick it off on 112BK a day or two early, but to give extra time for planning, we spoke recently with Mickey Heller, co-chair of Brooklyn Pride, and Floyd Ramore, executive director of the Brooklyn Community Pride Center. Here's that conversation. Mickey, Floyd, thank you so much for being here to talk about Brooklyn Pride and also the work that you guys are doing in the community. It's fascinating work. I can't tell you how happy I am to have you. Mickey, can you tell me a little bit about this year's theme, what you're really excited about? Well, this year, the theme is Don't Hide Your Pride. Don't Hide Your Pride. I it's our 22nd that. year, and we're really excited to be doing this again, our parade, our festival, and actually an entire week of events. One of them, two new events, one is an ice cream social on Wednesday night. Mm. But we'll get into that more, because I know we like our ice cream. Yes. But we're so proud of what's going on here and being able to openly walk the streets and feel proud of who we are, whether it's the festival, our mm. stages, our parade. We're going to have a good time this year. Mm -hmm. We definitely are. I'm going to be there. And Floyd, you have something special to celebrate this year, which is your organization moving from, I believe it was downtown BK to Bed-Stuy. Exactly. Right? Yeah. How's that going? Why did you guys decide to make that move? Well, there are many reasons. Uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant is a, a hotbed of neighborhood activity. We wanted mm -hmm. to be in the middle of it, right there at Restoration Plaza. Mm -hmm. uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant also has one of the highest new HIV infection rates, mm -hmm. along with Crown Heights, where we will expand in 2020 into the Bedford Union Armory. Mm -hmm. And we're looking wow. to work with our community partners uh, to help reduce these new HIV infections. Absolutely. And is that specifically why you chose Restoration Plaza? We've had so many people here on recently. 
recently who have either had their billings in Restoration Plaza or have some help of their in Bed-Stuy from Restoration Plaza. How is that informing the work that you're doing in the community there? Well, the community is informing us. Mm -hmm. It's a community hub, if you will. There's yes. lots of activities going on there, everything from workforce development to the arts. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at uh, collaborating with them to expand the reach into the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah. And Mickey, you've been working with this community and in this with the parade specifically for two decades. Well, the, the parade itself is the well, the Brooklyn Pride is now in its twenty-second year. Right. It's my tenth year with the uh, Brooklyn Pride organization oh, itself, wow. and I'm actually glad Floyd is here because I was one of the original board members for the Brooklyn Community Pride yeah. Center when they formed. But being part of this community is just. An amazing experience. The love, the affection, the warmth. It really is a family. And yeah. when you walk down the, whether you watch the parade or walk the parade or in the parade, you really sense that intimacy. Mm -hmm. No offense to our sisters and brothers over in Manhattan when they have their seven hour parade. Right. Ours is about 90 minutes long, and from start to finish, you feel the love. Wow. Can you tell me, like, over the time that you've been um, involved with the parade, what have you guys learned that's, like, unique about the Brooklyn LGBTQ family? Not, I mean, aside from the closeness. That's exactly it. Brooklyn is a family, and I know our former borough president, Marty Markowitz, used to call Park Slope the lesbian capital of the world. <laughs> yes, But it yes. really is family. When you see the same-sex couples walking down the streets of Fifth Avenue with the baby strollers, I know one of the owners of, uh, the owners of Bogota Latin Bistro and Midi yes, Midi, Fareed yes. and George, they're one of our, one of our special parts in our heart. They, adopt, they have two children now, mm -hmm. and they are a wonderful family. And they really epitomize what Brooklyn LGBT community is all about. They're involved, they have business, they spend their money, they raise right. their kids. And that's what's so special about Brooklyn. It's not everyone from so far away, although we have people from over overseas coming over for the parade and wow. for our week of events, which I'll tell you about in just a moment, or our whole week of events. But we it really is the intimacy that, mm -hmm. and the love that takes care of Brooklyn Pride. And I love that you talk about that intimacy and that you talk about that family. And I know, Floyd, one of the things that has been really important to you is the word inclusion and making sure that there is a place for everybody, you know, in this parade that's celebrating something very specific, but is actually for everyone. How do you accomplish that? It's a complex process mm -hmm. because we, I think we're in a, a linguistic universe that is struggling to convey the, the different gender identities mm -hmm. that are beginning to evolve. Right. Um, and this is where our logo has come from, this sort of crisscross hashtag. Some mm -hmm. people think it's a hashtag, a plus sign, right. streets intersecting. It represents diversity and inclusion, which is a very important value to us. Mm -hmm. um, and we hope to continue to reach out to very diverse communities. How do we accomplish that? By asking people. Mm -hmm. We make explicit that we want people of color, women, transgender people to come in, mm -hmm. check out our center, and tell us what kind of programming they'd like to see happen. That's fantastic. And I know that you said before that your organization has been working um, with the AIDS community and specifically with those um, members. Obviously, you talk about the growing numbers in Bed-Stuy, so uh, there's more and more of the same people who you want to feel included who need services like this. How do you offer that? 
to people. Like, how do you, how are you incorporating that message into Pride this year? Well, that's a twofold question. Yes, how do absolutely. we how do we deal with that through community partnerships? We mm -hmm. see our role as a community center to leverage the expertise that exists in our community, and there's a lot of it. Right. Uh, one of those community experts is Canva's Young Men's Health Project. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a full-time presence at the Brooklyn Community Pride Center, wow. and their mission is to reach out to young men who have sex with other men, mm -hmm. uh, 13 to 29, mostly in communities of color and transgender women, to reduce the uh, HIV infection rates within that wow. specific community. Wow. And they are really knocking it out of the park. Mm -hmm. um, with respect to how do we do that during Pride uh, season, uh, we are working with Canva this year in the uh, Pride Parade with a float. Mm -hmm. So we and Canva together, along with City Point, one of our sponsors for an event that we're doing, uh, are working together on the float in Pride season to help get the message out. Wow. Yeah. If I could piggyback on what yeah, Floyd said, what, what we do at Brooklyn Pride, one of the things that I'm so proud of is we have our street, multicultural street festival during the day yeah. from 11 a.m. until 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. And yes, you will have your calzones and your repas and all those trucks, right. but you also have a plethora of service organizations that are there between churches, a, uh, HIV testing. One of our biggest sponsors, uh, AIDS Healthcare Foundation, has six spots along the festival where they do free testing and, and they even have their, uh, their gift store out of the closet, which is a wonderful secondhand store. Uh, BCPC has a booth, Canva uh, has a booth. Uh, you, so when we go along that festival, which has now been expanded from, to, from 1st to 9th Street, mm -hmm. you will see all the vendors, but you'll see all the service organizations. And I always love to tell them that they might not have the lines like these big booths have, but they serve a purpose. They change lives. They absolutely do. That's absolutely correct. And Mickey, you know, we only have so much time left, which sucks because I feel like I want to ask both of you a million more questions, but I do want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that ice cream social that I might want to come I'll to. I'll be very quick and tell you about the week of events. <laughs> we start Monday evening at mm -hmm. 7 o'clock at Brooklyn Borough Hall. Borough President Eric Adams does an event where the Borough President honors individuals. On Wednesday night, we have our ice cream social at Ample Hills Creamery mm -hmm. and Ample Hills for that month of June has a special flavor called Baby I Was Churned This Way <laughs> and for every pint that's being that's bought during the month of, of June they're going to donate a dollar to Brooklyn Pride but on that Wednesday night you come and have free ice cream or donate to Brooklyn Pride that's Wednesday what's in there oh I gotta know. I tell you, it is hazelnut ice cream studded with chocolate-covered rainbow-colored sunflower seeds. Uh, okay, but so let me finish by saying Thursday is our comedy night at Club Ecstasy. Lois Thompson, who is an incredible comic, has six wonderful laugh-filled people coming in to make you laugh. It's all free. At Friday night, we have an event with AIDS Healthcare Foundation mm -hmm. right across the street from Out of the Closet. And of course, Saturday, our 5K run starts the day already sold out. Mm -hmm. We've reached the limit. Our multi cultural festival from 11 a.m. until 6 uh, till 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. with two stages of entertainment and our family fun zone for children mm -hmm. families we have face painters balloon animals oh. wonderful time and of course the only twilight parade in the northeast starts at 7:30 sharp from the corner of 5th avenue in st john's and we go gaily forward to wow. 9th street wow oh my gosh this sounds amazing so uh, really quickly really quickly mickey beyond june what are you looking forward to Beyond June, we have events every month. Just 
social events. We have one group called Dine with Pride, where monthly we meet at a restaurant and we get people together in the community. And then we also have a drink with Pride, where we'll meet with a bar. We're also looking forward to working more with BC, well, I call it BCPC, Brooklyn Community Pride <laughs> Center, uh, to, to just continue to get the word out to the communities. We've been proud to expand all throughout different parts of Brooklyn, but we want to go further. There are people all over the borough that need to hear the story. How about you, Floyd? I would love to shamelessly plug two things. Give it to me. One is June 9. We're having a party at City Point Mall. Mm -hmm. Come out and meet the retailers and drink, dance, and be happy there. It's free, totally free. You can check it out on our website. It's going to be from 9 to 11 on June 9th on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And then the following week on June 14th is the Community Leadership Awards and Gala, mm -hmm. our biggest fundraiser of the season, cocktails, dinner, dancing, all honoring Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Jasmine Thomas from City Community Development and Chubb Personal Risk Services, all with incredible, uh, all incredible leaders of the LGBTQ plus community. Do I have a moment to say our, our grand marshals? Our grand marshals this year are Juliet Howard and her wife Norma Jennings, mm -hmm. Drag Queen Story Hour, and Laosha Gorskov from Rusa Pride. Thank you guys so much for being here. I can't tell you how important it is the work that you're doing in the community. I hope that there is a huge turnout for Brooklyn Pride. Thank you. Look forward to having you with us. Oh, yeah, you come on, on out on June 14. You'll see me. It's a favorite New York City pastime, beating up on the MTA. Given all its woes, overcrowded platforms and cars, delays, decrepit stations, outdated technology, inadequate access for those with disabilities, more delays, summers of hell, flying cockroaches, and the impending apocalypse, the agency is a deserving target. The same could be said of anyone brave enough to stand up at a town hall and take questions about the MTA's current state of affairs and its plans to address some of them. Well, that's what Andy Byford, president of the New York City Transit Authority, did on Tuesday night at an event hosted by Brooklyn Assemblymember Robert Carroll. Our own Shireen Barhi was in attendance, and she's with us now. Welcome, Shireen. Thank you for having me, Ashley. Also, Ross is with us again, but, you know. How's it going, Ross? Hi, Ashley. Happy to be here. <laughs> Shireen, tell me what happened at this meeting. So this was the first general town hall held by NYC Transit head Andy Byford. It was at the John Jay School in Park Slope. Mm -hmm. I want to say like about 70 people showed up. He started the town hall by talking about some of his new plan to fix the subway. And what was the number on that again? About like 70 people. Oh, the fixing? Yeah, the fixing. So it's number. a multi-billion dollar plan. Oh, yeah. And they say, so initially he mentioned 18, but there's a phase two, which is also going to be like $17 billion. So I'm guessing like... So that's like what, like $35 billion? Yeah, like more than 35. Where's yeah. That, where's oh. that money coming from? I have no idea. Does I he guess. Have like, for that? <laughs> He's like, he has, I don't know. Well, one of the questions was that how he wants to navigate the very fraught relationship between uh, Mayor de Blasio and mm -hmm. Governor Cuomo, because, you know, those two. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oil and vinegar. So he says that when you have a state of uh, emergency, and that's what Governor Cuomo basically called the state of New York City subway, mm -hmm. a state of emergency. He and said housing. that you, uh, and, and housing, and well. So he basically mentioned that, you know, when you have a state of emergency, both parties 
no matter what the conflicts are, will come to the table and they will right. basically talk and hopefully and he said that we should focus on the positive and not on the negative. <laughs> Isn't yeah. that what they all say when right? they're in the leadership right? position? Don't focus on the negative. Right? Focus on the positive. Especially when you're sitting in a, a train where it doesn't have, like, the ACs broken right. and you basically have to go from Sunset Park to Harlem. You know, just focus on the positive. Just focus on the positives. <laughs> and so you asked a question, right? It was, I did. Uh, it was interestingly received, right? It was a little bit, like, feather ruffly, I want to mm. say. So what, my question was about recent reports that say that MTA chief Joseph Lota has several other positions, namely at NYU Langone and uh, Madison Square Garden, as well as other positions that could pose conflicts of interest. You know, especially now that we have this state of emergency, right. doesn't the New York City subway deserve a chief that's, like, conflict-free and full-time, especially since the reports also mention that Joseph Lota is scaling back on the hours he devotes to the MTA, you know? So you mean to tell me that the person, like, the chief of the MTA also has several other yeah. jobs? yeah. At Madison Square Garden. So this isn't but, Byford, right? This isn't Byford. No, no, this isn't Byford. This is this Joseph is, Lota. Yeah, yeah, Joseph Lota. Joseph Lota, who actually hired Byford to do that job. I just don't understand. They brought in Andy Byford from uh, Toronto. He was mm -hmm. like the CEO of the Toronto Transit Commission. Mm -hmm. and Toronto and has two subway lines. It has by two the way. subway lines. Ooh. And you know, like when you come. When you think of, like, New York City and the state of the subways we have right now, the yeah. budget has been mismanaged since the 1990s, you know? Right. They say the 1990s, like, was the golden era for the New York City subway, mm -hmm. you know? But ever since 2010, which is when I moved right. to New York, actually, like, it's just been going downhill. So. And I've only been here for four years, but, Ross, you've been here longer. Right. What have you seen with the subway system? I ride my bicycle. <laughs> Ross rides his bicycle to his home, which, to be perfectly honest, is about two blocks from Brickhouse. Just letting wow. everybody know. Wow. Assemblymember Robert Carroll was there. He was kind of the mediator. He was the moderator of he the was, event. He was. He was. I found this really interesting, mm -hmm. that the subway line that seems to be the most in trouble, just judging by the town hall yesterday, was the F train. There were a lot of people who had many gripes about the F train, and at some point Bobby Carroll was like, hey, who else is here for the F train? Because we all lined up to ask questions, mm -hmm. and, you know, maybe like 20 hands showed up to the area. Wow. Yeah, maybe. Well, I wonder if that was self-selecting, because the location of the town hall is kind of on the F train maybe. line. Maybe, yeah, that's so maybe true. That's why it's like part I don't ride the F train very often, so I, I wouldn't never know how do. terrible yeah. it was. Well, I used to ride the F train. It wasn't as bad as the G train, although it was really infuriating if you're if you're at Bergen Street and What's you're on as that bad line. As the G train. Well, the G train actually is now this sort of this gem, one. you know, yeah. that's is often on time, strangely and predictable. But the F train, when the F train wasn't working or it was going kind of doing loop to loops and changing mm. tracks and things like that, it would get a bit infuriating, especially if you thought you were on the F train and all of a sudden you're on the A train line. I mean, that there were a lot of groups there, you know, from the Rise and Resist group, which advocates for more accessibility. And we had a couple of advocates here talking mm -hmm. about accessibility and uh, the importance of having more accessible subway stations. That's and a I'm big. I'm all for that. When I moved here, I was on crutches. 
So I know how inaccessible <laughs> the subway system here is New York for someone who's injured in a particular way Absolutely. or maybe living with a disability. There was a and woman not who temporary. Yeah, there was a woman who just like piggybacking off of what you said, there was mm -hmm. a woman whose thirteen year old daughter basically relied on a motorized scooter to get mm -hmm. around and she was telling me how it breaks her heart to see that, you know, whenever there's a class trip or something, her daughter couldn't go. And she right. was just advocating for and you know eventually she was like riding the subway is a privilege and just made me think that you know we get to complain about the subway and we sit about right. the smell about the delays but there's some people who don't even make it down those stairs Absolutely. and it's just important to know that even complaining about the subway is like, yes perspective totally. is important though focusing on the positive i'm not totally. gonna go that far <laughs> Shireen, thank you so much for going to this meeting and for relaying this information to us. We really appreciate it. And we'll be back soon, I'm sure, talking about the MTA. Of course. Thank you for having me, Ashley. Thank you. Tuesday was Starbucks Day of Racial Sensitivity Training, when they closed 8,000 stores in the U.S. It was their response to the actions of the manager of a Philadelphia store that led to the arrest of two black men who were waiting to have a meeting. Some have called the training a cynical marketing ploy. Others, a good first step. We wanted to hear from someone who experienced it. We have on the phone a New York City-based Starbucks employee whose name we're withholding and whose store we're not identifying because he is not authorized to speak for the company. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Well, first of all, I just wanted to ask you what the training was like. Well, at first they brought half of the store into the back room and sat us all down and explained, you know, what happened to people who didn't know what happened. Mm -hmm. And then they split us into groups and they gave us uh, iPads and they had videos on the iPads that went through, I guess, all the things they wanted to touch upon. And they mm -hmm. also gave us notebooks and packets that we had to fill out. And the experience was, was good. But, I mean, when we talked about it and discussed as a group, the point of it wasn't really to try to take away people who felt certain ways towards other people was more of trying to make you realize your unconscious bias towards certain types of people and how they look or what they're doing. Right. So a lot of the training was people misinterpreting something like someone trying to take a cup, like walking back and forth with it, or someone trying to panhandle and talk about how, you know, subconsciously we see a bunch of biases that our brain takes on that we don't really recognize. So it was mm -hmm. kind of trying to make you more aware of you know, when you're being, I guess, biased towards a situation, so you could kind of cut that out. Do you think that if a training like this had been done before the incident in Philadelphia, that that might have changed the outcome? Or does it seem like the sort of thing that wouldn't have changed the outcome and is just, you know, something they're doing now? I mean, the training, I feel, for some people would, because I can't comment on how the person felt in Philadelphia. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, if somebody who was racist went through this training, I don't think they'll stop being racist because mm. I don't think you can really change the way somebody thinks if it's like something that's been instilled in them since they were young. Mm -hmm. But I think it helped a lot of people, like somebody in our meeting brought up that 
he didn't notice that sometimes he did do some of the things that they said, you know, people do. And he'll, he'll be more aware of it now rather than jumping to an actual conclusion about, like, a certain type of person. Because one of them on there was about um, a husband walking up to a wife, and because he looked scruffy, the woman told him, like, there's no panhandling here. Mm-hmm. But she didn't know that. So he said it makes him more aware sometimes of, like, you know, when he might do something like that instead of just outright doing it without thinking the next time. And so who? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I think it helps in some areas, but for people who, you know, their thought process is corrupted or like that, I don't think it's going to change somebody's entire thought process right. behind actions like that. Right. Well, is there anything that you think they could have done better? Because um, it sounds like what you're saying is that the training that they gave actually did, for a certain kind of person, did give them the tools to recognize their own unconscious bias um, in the workplace and to think about, you know, these things before they speak or before uh, they offend someone. But do you think it could have gone further, that it should have gone further, or do you think it was right where it should have been? I think for... What had happened, it kind of touched perfectly where it's at. If it was a serious, serious matter, obviously racism is serious, but, you know, there was nobody actually hurt or killed or anything of that matter. But to where they wanted to, I guess, touch on and make points to where their employees should feel, Mm -hmm. then I think it touched good on that part. Good. Well, good. I was going to say, because for New Yorkers, for us, we're in the melting pot, so kind of all this stuff doesn't really like touch most of us in the store because we're not like that but obviously it was shown to 8,000 stores so somewhere else could do well with it better than us but my store mostly is the same type of people like you know everybody there comes from all different parts of New York so it's like none of that has ever actually really happened to us or in our store to that extent. So it's a different experience in different places. Maybe, you know, if they do something like this again, maybe they'll tailor it a little bit more to the communities that the stores are actually in. That might be helpful. Uh, But thank you so much for being here today and for telling us about how this went. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. That's the show for today. Join us again tomorrow when we speak with a couple engaged in the climate change fight in two very different ways. See you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.